Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys. Today we're going to continue our march through the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. Last week in our study, Mountain Highs, we looked at a very prominent event in the life of Christ. We looked at the transfiguration as we took a look at some of the details from Jesus' time up on the Mount of Transfiguration, we noted some of the God's desires for us. How God desires for us to spend quality time with Him. How God desires to do a work of transformation in our own lives. To use us, to minister to others, and to move forward in our lives, creating new seasons and new moments. We noted as well how God reveals Himself to us through His Word. And probably most important of all, we noted how God desires for us to put our focus and our attention upon Jesus Christ. He is what is most important in our lives. He needs to take center stage. This morning, we're going to continue in Luke's account, noting what happened when Jesus and his three disciples came down the mountain, and they joined together with the other nine disciples that were waiting for them in the valley. The title of our message this morning is Valley Lows. Okay, Valley Lows. And our text is going to be Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. We're going to keep it short, or try to at least, so that we have enough time for communion at the end of our service, seeing as it is the first Sunday of the month and the normal time that we set aside to observe and participate in the Lord's Supper. So, will you all rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word? As I read through our text, uh, I'm going to be reading from my Bible. It's the New King James Version. Uh, Do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke writes the following in chapter 9, verse um, 37. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Let's stop right there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to go through your word, to allow your word to just speak to us, to mold us and shape us. Lord, we thank you that your word comes with a guarantee, Lord, that it will accomplish that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, continue that work that you desire to do in us and through us. Lord, we ask that uh, you'd be honored and glorified in all that's said. Um, And I pray, Lord, that we would just be open to all that your Spirit desires to say to us, your church. Give our time, our study to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, last week, we only covered the first part of verse 36, at the very tail end of the study, and I told you that we would 
Look at the rest of the uh, verse 36. Next time we came together, I want to be a man of my word. And so we're going to look at verse 36 again. Uh, if you just look up in your Bible to verse 36, it says, When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. And, and that's where we stopped last week, emphasizing the importance of the Father, putting all the focus upon his Son alone. But the verse continues and states, But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. I want to quickly explain this before we continue on with our text from this morning. It's interesting to me that Luke tells us that after experiencing this incredible mountaintop experience with the Lord and Elijah and Moses, that the disciples kept quiet about it and they didn't tell anyone about it in those days. You know, if I was up on that mountain that night and saw what the disciples saw, I would want to share it with as many people as possible. You know, what an amazing thing to be witness of. The transfiguration of Christ, the glory of God radiating from within the Lord, bursting out as this incredibly bright and blinding light. And then to see Elijah and Moses there speaking to him and to top it all off, to hear the very voice of the Father call out from within the cloud. I mean, it was an amazing experience, a mountaintop experience like no other. And it does beg the question, why is it that they said nothing about it? Well, we learn from the other gospel accounts the answer to that very question. Because we're told both in Matthew and Mark's account that while they started to make their way down the mountain after that amazing experience, that Jesus commanded them to tell no one. Mark 9, verse 9 reads, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And in Matthew's gospel, it reads similarly, stating, Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And so the reason they kept quiet about these things was not because they weren't excited about sharing it, but because Jesus had commanded them not to say anything. Basically, Jesus had put a gag order on them. Jesus knew his time was coming. He had a mission before him, and the news of this event spreading would only get in the way and continue to stir false hopes of what the rest of the people thought of when it came to the mission that he was on as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so he told them not to tell anyone. But I do want you to understand something very important here. The gag order Jesus put them on, it had a termination clause. Okay? They weren't to say anything to anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Once Jesus rose from the dead, they would be able to tell people all about what happened, and that is exactly what they did. We know this because Peter's recorded in 2 Peter chapter 1 describing this event when he writes, We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And John wrote about it when he wrote in his own gospel about how he beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father in John chapter 1. You know, as I consider this gag order that was given to the disciples, it makes me think of the irony of it all for us today. How strange it is that these guys were probably so excited to share about what God had done in their life, but were forbidden from doing so. And how we are free to tell others of what God has done in our life, and yet so many of us are quiet about the Lord and our relationship with Him and, and what we've seen Him do. Listen, church family, the termination clause on that gag order, it has been fulfilled. 
Okay? Jesus, the Son of Man, has risen from the dead. We have been given a wonderful privilege to openly share about what the Lord has done in our lives. And so let's be bold about sharing our faith, about sharing all the amazing things God has done in our lives, about our relationship with Jesus, how we have been set free from sin, and how we have become partakers of the amazing grace of God. Let's get the word out, okay? Let's tell the people all around us of the wonderful things God has done. Well, I appreciate you giving me that opportunity to finish off verse 36. I wanted to be a man of my word, but let's jump into our text for today. Verse 37, it says, Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Our text opens with letting us know how on the next day, after spending the night up on the mountain with the Lord and Moses and Elijah, that Peter, James, and John came down the mountain with Jesus, and there they met a great multitude. Now, according to the other gospel accounts, we know that the multitude consisted of not only the other nine disciples, but also a group of scribes. Okay? These were teachers of the law. They were friends of the religious elite in Jesus' day. And we're told in Mark's gospel that the disciples and the scribes, they were disputing with one another. Okay? They were arguing with each other. And along with the arguing scribes, as we've read and we've seen, there was also a desperate father and a demon-possessed son within that multitude. While up on the mountaintop, Peter, James, and John experienced something incredible. The glory of God's Son was revealed. Great prophets of old appeared in the form of Moses and Elijah. The voice of God the Father was heard, and now they come down from there and are immediately met with a fight and with the enemy. You see, what the disciples didn't realize and understand was that the enemy was waiting for them there at the bottom of the mountain, there in the valley, in the form of an arguing multitude and a demonic child. And I see in this a very important lesson for us to learn and to remember. When we experience something special, when we have those, you know, spiritual mountaintop moments, oftentimes the enemy will be waiting for you when you come down the mountain. This isn't something new. This isn't something that we should be shocked by because we read of it happening over and over again throughout the scriptures. Consider the very people that Peter, James, and John just saw up on that mountain, right? Moses had learned this lesson firsthand. Back in Exodus 32, we read of what happened for Moses at the bottom of his own mountaintop experience. Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord had given to him two tablets of stone that the Lord had written his law upon. And while up on the mountain, Moses experienced a type of intimacy that few have ever experienced. The Lord conversed back and forth uh, with Moses. And the Lord gave to Moses specific instructions for the nation of Israel, you know, how they ought to live their life and how they were to worship the Lord. It was an incredible time for Moses. But down at the bottom of the mountain, the enemy was at work. The Lord told Moses in Exodus 34, verse 7 and 8, says, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses had 
to come down from that mountaintop experience and had to deal with the foolishness of Aaron and the Israelites' attempt to make for themselves a new God that would go before them. You see, the enemy was at work in the valley waiting for Moses to come down from the mountaintop. Elijah, too, experienced the attack of the enemy after his mountaintop experience. And what is one of the biggest showdowns recorded for us in Scripture? Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, he called out the 450 false prophets of Baal and the 400 false prophets of Asherah. They ascended up Mount Carmel, and there Elijah openly challenged the prophets of Baal to call down fire from heaven to see if their God was real and and able to answer. You guys are probably familiar with the account. After hours of the false prophets dancing and calling out to Baal, the god of thunder, okay, and cutting themselves with knives and lances in an attempt to get a response, Elijah then prepared his bull upon an altar, and then he soaked it with water. And then in a very simple yet powerful prayer, Elijah entreated the Lord, saying, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And you guys know what happened. God showed up in a big and powerful way, consuming not only the sacrifice that was on the altar, but the entire altar itself. All was consumed in the fire that came down from heaven. The scriptures say that the fire licked every bit of water that had been poured upon the altar and the sacrifice. Afterwards, Elijah turned and had the false prophets seized. They were executed. It was an incredible victory for the Lord and for Elijah that day. But... Elijah would soon find out that the enemy was at work at the bottom of the mountain. For when he returned from that incredible victory in the Lord from the top of Mount Carmel, he was delivered a message by Queen Jezebel that she had sworn to have him killed the very next day. The enemy was there waiting for him. Moses had learned this truth. Elijah had learned this truth. And now it was time for Peter, James, and John to learn this truth. The enemy will wait. Excuse me, the enemy will wait for you to come down from your mountaintop experiences and try his best to rob you of all that the Lord had done on the mountaintop. It says, he says, okay, go ahead and have your time up there. That's fine. Just wait till you come down, and that's where I'll get you. You see, the enemy of our souls wants to do all that he can to take away from us the victories and the incredible things God has done and continues to do in our lives. And it should come to us as no surprise that after nearly every great mountaintop experience with the Lord, the enemy will be waiting for us in the valley. Now to some of you, some of us, that may sound a bit discomforting. You know that the enemy awaits for us in the valleys? But don't let it be. We must remember something that the Syrian armies learned firsthand in 1 Kings chapter 20. You see, back in 1 Kings chapter 20, a Syrian king by the name of Ben-Hadad had gathered all of his forces together and he had a coalition of some 32 kings with him and they besieged Samaria, which was under the rule of King Ahab, the king of Israel. A prophet of the Lord came to King Ahab and told him that the Lord was going to deliver them from the hand of Ben-Hadad and his coalition of kings. And the Lord did. A group of young leaders went up against the king and his men who were uh, situated high up in a command post in the mountains, in the hilltops. And the Syrians had to retreat and regroup. 
Now, certain servants of the Syrian king came to Ben-Hadad and explained to him that the reason they had lost was because the Israelites' gods were the gods of the hills. And if they would attack the Israelites in the plains, then they would be victorious. And so, the next spring, the Syrians, with this new battle plan, to avoid the high hilltops and to attack down in the plains, they established themselves and were ready for combat. And at that moment, a man of God approached the king of Israel, who along with his men were completely surrounded by the masses of Ben-Hadad's forces. And he declared to the king this. He said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. On that day, the Syrians learned that the God we serve is not only the God of the mountaintops, but he is God of the valleys and everything in between. Okay, we need to remember this and not be afraid of the enemy that awaits us in the valley because our God is the God of the mountains and the God of the valleys. He reigns supreme over all and he will see us through each and every moment, each and every season we go through. Let's get back to our text in chapter 9. Take a look at verses 38 through 40. It says, Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. We'll pause right there. We're told of a father who brought his only son to Jesus, wanting Jesus to heal his son from demonic possession. The father pours out his heart to Jesus, describing the pain and the agony his son's forced to endure because of this demonic spirit that takes control of him, seizes him. We can understand the heart of this father as he sees his son tortured over and over again and being powerless to do anything at all about it. His hope was in Jesus being able to free his son. But when he came to the disciples, Jesus was not around. And and so he asked the disciples to cast the demonic spirit out but they were unable to. You know, what a contrast between the event that took place the night before up on the mountaintop and the scenario unfolding before us in the valley. You see, the night before up on the mountain, we heard the Almighty Heavenly Father declaring, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. But here in the valley, we have a powerless earthly Father seeking help for His bedeviled Son, who we know can't even speak. It was a mute spirit that was upon him. Such a contrast between the mountaintop high experience and the low of the valley experience. And yet, there are important lessons for us to learn from each of them. We want to note how the enemy works in the valley. We don't want to give him too much credit, but we want to understand We don't want to be ignorant of his schemes and his devices, his tricks of the trade. Second Corinthians speaks about this very thing when Paul talked about the possibility of Satan taking advantage of us if we are ignorant of his devices. And and again, uh, in 1 Peter, we're exhorted to be sober and vigilant, knowing that our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Paul urges us to put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles, that's the schemings, the plotting, okay, of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, the spiritual battle is real, and we need to be aware of how the enemy works, that we may be prepared to stand against him. And the first thing I want to note here is how the enemy can often work in and through unmet expectations. This father brought his only son to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there. So he asked the disciples to cast out the demon, but they were unable to do so. This father brought his son to the Lord. That was a good thing. We need to bring our children before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't there. And and so he looked to the Lord's disciples to help, but, but they were unable. And he was seemingly at a loss, stripped uh, uh, of his hope. And, and the enemy loves to come in and work in those types of situations. Situations where it seems like the Lord, you know, he isn't around. You know, where he's absent or unavailable to tend to our need. The enemy will begin to whisper lies to us, leading us to doubt the Lord, to doubt his love for us, to wonder why he wasn't there for us, why God was seemingly absent when we needed him most. When we turn to others for help, followers of the Lord, disciples of the Lord, and they can't seem to help either, the enemy continues his lies and tries to lead us into despair and into hopelessness. He wants to bring doubt into our hearts and lead us into believing the lie that it was pointless to come to the Lord in the first place with any sort of expectation. Listen, church family, do not entertain the lies of the enemy. Do not listen to those lies. When things don't work out the way we envisioned them, when things don't come to fruition, when we come face to face with unmet expectations, or when we feel like God, you know, isn't there for us, we must trust and remember that God is indeed with us. He sees and he knows exactly what we are going through and his ways and his plans for us are for our good, for his glory, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. His thoughts are not our thoughts nor our ways, his ways. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are far above our own thoughts. That's what Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 teach us. Know and believe that God is for you, and that he sees you, and he knows exactly what he is doing. Now, I want you to consider as well the work of the enemy in the life of not only this father, father, but also the life of the disciples down there in the valley. These disciples were asked to pray for and cast out this spirit from this man's son, but they were unable to. And we get the sense that no matter how much they prayed for this boy, they were unable to free him from this demonic influence. Thus, there was this fighting and arguing going along, presumably about, well, the scribes are on the scene and they're like, hey, you can't do it. Why can't you do this? And this arguing going on. I believe this is another way the enemy loves to work, through what we would deem unanswered prayers. The disciples prayed and nothing happened. I'm sure they prayed several times, each one of them taking an opportunity to pray that they may help this man and and free his son. But no amount of prayer seemed to be working. Now we know that previously these disciples were given the power to cast out demons. God had used them to pray for and help others when Jesus sent them out two by two. Earlier in our study of Luke, we read of how Jesus called his 12 disciples together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. They had done it before. Why couldn't they do it again? You see, the enemy loves to work in these sorts of situations as well, where it seems like God is deaf or unresponsive to our prayers and our cries to him. 
But this lie from the enemy, it goes against what the scriptures teach us. We know he hears our prayers. We know he's sovereign. We know that nothing gets by him. Psalm 139 declares this. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You see, before we even speak the words, God already knows. He knows our prayers. He knows what we're going through. Jeremiah chapter 29 proclaims, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. God listens to us. He hears us, and he knows what he's doing. He knows his own thoughts towards us. His plans for us are for peace, to give us a future and a hope. Do not let the enemy lead you into thinking that God doesn't hear your prayers or that he is powerless to answer your prayers. God is sovereign, and he is at work. Our prayers that we think go unanswered are not because God doesn't hear or God doesn't care. Church family, we need to understand that in His sovereign ways that are beyond us, God sometimes answers prayers with with a no. And sometimes God answers prayers with a a not yet. And we have to wait upon the Lord. And He does so knowing His thoughts and His plans and His desires for us. Seemingly unanswered prayers are God's way of of realigning our hearts with His. They are ways God gets us to draw close to Him, to seek Him more, to commune with Him more. God loves us. God desires to commune with us. He wants to hear from us, and He wants to work in and through our lives, and He does so through prayer. If God seems to not answer your prayers, church family, I want to encourage you, continue to seek Him. Continue to draw close to Him. Wait upon Him And allow Him to reveal His plan to you day by day, step by step, as you continue to seek Him by faith. Our hope and our thought and our trust, our belief is that one day we'll be able to look back and when things weren't making sense and we had no idea what was going on, we'll be able to look back and say, God, You're sovereign. You're sovereign in this. And while we don't understand why these things happened, what we were going through, we see now. And, and we can have that peace. Now, I do want to caution you. It is true. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because of other reasons as well. Sometimes we ask amiss. Sometimes we ask while in sin, wanting God to bless us while living in unconfessed sin. Sometimes our hearts and our plans aren't aligned with his own. And in those situations, God may seem to not answer our prayers. But the truth of the matter is that God has answered. He just hasn't answered the way we want him to answer. There are uh, all sorts of reasons why God may not grant to us our own desires, but don't ever allow yourself to believe that it's because he can't hear your prayers or that he's powerless to do anything about your prayers. Such things are nothing more than lies from the enemy. They are ways that the enemy seeks to get us to turn from the Lord, to doubt the Lord and his love for us. Do not receive them. Well, let's continue on in our text. Hear what Jesus had to say in response to this father's plea and the disciples' unanswered prayers. Take a look at verses 41 and 42. It says, Then Jesus answered and said, 
O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Jesus replied to this father seeking help by addressing the entire multitude, and he addressed them as a faithless and perverse generation. Evidently, the problem here was twofold. One of the reasons this demon could not be cast out was based upon disbelief. The generation, the whole group, lacked faith to believe. The other reason Jesus alludes to is that the generation was perverse. The word perverse, it means to churn or twist throughout or to distort or mislead. This generation had been misled. They had been churned from their simple faith in God into following after rules and regulations of man. Jesus followed up his accusation with a two-part question. How long shall I be with you was the first part of the question. The second part of the question was how long shall I bear with you? And the idea is plain to see here, you guys. Jesus had been around for over two years now. He'd been correcting the errors of the religious leaders. He's been straightening out their twisted beliefs. But his time was almost up. As we'll see, his face is headed toward Jerusalem and the cross. His days on earth as a humble servant were drawing to an end, and they still weren't understanding. They still weren't weren't able to display the kind of faith needed to cast out this demon. Jesus was expecting the generation to grow in their faith, to mature, to come to a place where he would no longer have to bear them up like a parent carrying a child, but that they would be able to stand on their own two feet and and learn to walk for themselves. Now, it's really easy to look at this group and say, yeah, guys, get it together, right? I mean, Jesus has been walking amongst you for the last two years now, and he's done all these miracles. He's fed y'all with a few fish and loaves, and he's done this and he's done that. And, and, you know, we can look at that and say, how come you're struggling? You know, this should be, you know, a slam dunk for you. Let me ask you something, okay? How long have you been walking with Jesus? How long have you been a believer in the Lord? And how many of us still struggle even though we've been walking with the Lord for more than two years, three years, five years, ten years, or even longer. You know, just as Jesus was expecting to see growth and maturity in the generation he was walking amongst, he expects the same today. Some of us, though we accepted the Lord into our life several years ago, we are still spiritual babes. We haven't taken the steps to develop and mature our relationship with the Lord. This is something that Paul addressed in his letters. He wrote to the church in Corinth, telling them, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it, and even now are still not able, for you are still carnal. To the church in Ephesus, he wrote, How we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. The writer of Hebrews gets in on it as well, proclaiming, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
God expects us to grow, to mature. And that maturing process takes place as we exercise our spiritual senses, as we operate in faith, as we read and study the Word, as we develop our prayer life, as we tune our ears and our hearts to listen for the voice of the Lord. It is a process that God wants to bring us through, but He won't drag us through. We need to be willing participants. We need to want to grow. We need to want to mature, to be willing to discipline ourselves spiritually. And and oftentimes, God will use our times in the valley to work on that growth in our lives. You see, mountaintop experiences, they are wonderful and they are great, but more often than not, church family, let me tell you this, true, lasting growth happens in the valley. In those seasons and times of difficulty, when we are being stretched, when times are tough, we're more likely to draw near to the Lord. We're more likely to pursue after Him, to commune with Him when we're in the valley. When we are going through times of uncertainty and doubt and struggle, when we feel like God isn't there or He isn't answering our prayers, it's in those seasons, as we continue to persevere, that God often shows up in ways much more profound, in ways much deeper and richer than what we ever experience up on the mountaintop when everything is going great and God's work is evident. Listen, church family, do not despise the days and the seasons in the valley because you may just miss out on some of the greatest growth God wants to work in you and through you. Back to our text. We see at the end of verse 41 that Jesus called for the Son to man, the Son to bring, to be brought to him. And as the boy was being brought before Jesus, the spirit within him fought to the very end, throwing the boy down, convulsing him one last time. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, he healed the child, and returned him back to a grateful father. Down in the valley, we see the power and authority of the Lord on full display. The enemy was rendered powerless, it was cast out of the boy, and Jesus completely healed him, returning him to his father. The enemy may try and attack down in the valley, but the Lord is able to overcome the enemy, and he is able to grant us the victory as we seek after him. Let's wrap up our text, looking at our final verses, 43 through 45. It says, And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. When all were amazed and marveled at what Jesus did, Jesus turned to his disciples and reiterated something to them. He reminded them of his coming betrayal. He wanted to make sure that they understood this, that they didn't lose sight of the mission that lied before him, of the plan God had for him to fulfill. Unfortunately, the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand. And true intent and meaning was hidden from them. They couldn't perceive it. They couldn't comprehend it and were afraid to ask Jesus about what he said. You know, this reminder that Jesus gives of his mission and God's plan is important for us to know. There in the valley, Jesus reminded his disciples that this was all part of God's great and glorious plan. And I think that's something we need to remind ourselves of as well. 
our times and our seasons in the valley, they're, they're part of God's plan for us. God's going to use them to, to mold us and to shape us, to grow us, to mature us. God uses those times of stretching, those times of spiritual battle, those times of difficulty to draw us closer to him. And they are part of, of his incredible plan. God uses it. We can be confident of the Lord's work in us. He will be faithful to complete the work in us. He will never leave us nor abandon us. He is with us in the valley just as much as he is with us up on the mountaintops. Truly, our God is the God of the mountains and the God of the valleys. He is Lord over all, and he is at work in our lives in each and every season, each and every moment that we go through. Amen? Amen. Amen.